I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week, we're talking with Adam Kotzko about his book, Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital. Uh, he is on the faculty at Scheimer Great Books School of North Central College. You may also have seen him on Twitter with some very good takes. Uh, and he's also a popular blogger at itself.blog. Um, Adam has written so many very good books, and uh, just go and get them all. So uh, the one that we're talking about today is called Neoliberalism's Demons. Um, there's also lots of allusions to The Prince of This World, a book he wrote in 2016. Um, however, I mean, the the two books he has written in the past few years about the devil and neoliberalism are amazing, and I think something that you shouldn't sleep on whatsoever. Uh, but uh, for all you real Kotzko heads out there, um, his books Creepiness and Awkwardness are both my faves. Um, those are books he wrote, I think, uh, in like uh, the earlier 2010s, but both those books are so fun, and I love them, especially Awkwardness. I love that book. Um, highly suggest it. Get out there and get that book. <laughs> Yeah, really good office content. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, it's great. Um, something I do really appreciate about him, too, is that not only is he very good on Twitter and like good at political theology, but he also pays attention to popular culture in some pretty critical ways that I found very helpful. So there you go. Okay, so this week on the Magnificast, we have Adam Kotzko here to talk about his new book, Neoliberalism's Demons. Um, so Adam, can you just give us like an elevator pitch for your book and tell us a little bit what it's about? Yeah, my book is a, a study of uh, neoliberalism uh, that kind of grows out of the experience of uh, the breakdown of the neoliberal order that we're witnessing right now amid uh, the right-wing reaction, and to try to understand both what neoliberalism was and what it's potentially mutating into. I use the tools of uh, political theology, uh, which I characterize as um, a, a study that that tries to understand how social orders uh, attempt to present themselves as legitimate. Like, why did neoliberalism uh, believe that it was a legitimate order? Why did people go along with it? And why are people kind of um, viewing it as less legitimate now? 
Yeah, that's super helpful. Maybe you could say also a little bit more about um, political theology and how you use it or understand it. Uh, my guess is when people think about neoliberalism, they probably don't jump to uh, the tools of political theology as like a thing to think through, um, but you try to make a case for why they're really useful. So could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think um, my project is is relatively unique in that respect. I think the only person that I know of that's explicitly tried to connect political theology and neoliberalism is uh, Eric Santner, and he did so in uh, kind of a published series of lectures. So. Um, I think I'm the first full book on the topic. Um, and the reason that people don't usually associate neoliberalism with political theology is that political theology is usually associated most closely with the state and with things like sovereign emergency powers. Um, political theology was therefore hugely appro- um, uh, popular during the, the Bush years when it seemed like uh, Bush was claiming to be the decider who could sovereignly shape the world according to his will and um, matters relating to the state and military and things like that were taking the foreground and economic concerns seemed to be in the background. Um, do you want some, do you want historical background on like where political theology came from? Would that be too much for your audience or? <laughs> um, no, that might be helpful just briefly anyway, to just give an idea to what you mean by that. Cause my guess is when a lot of folks hear political theology uh, who listen to this podcast, they may think of like liberation theologies or you know uh, more kind of systematic theologies as something but you mean something a little more specific so i'm sure that would be pretty helpful right yes i'm not although i am a a huge admirer of liberation theology i i'm not uh, thinking of political theology in that way it's more of a critical discipline um it's based on the work of uh the legal theorist carl schmidt and he claimed that there was a kind of systematic parallel between political systems and theological systems. And he thought that this was exemplified most of all in the analogy between uh, the sovereign power of the state or of the ruler of the state and the sovereign power of God over the world. Um, So based on Schmitt's um, presentation of political theology, a lot of people have devoted themselves to uh, trying to find uh, theological roots for modern political concepts to try to show that like the secular world isn't all that secular after all. And there's been a lot more focus, as I said, on um, the state and sovereign emergency powers and things like that. And what I want to do is I want to take Schmidt's basic insights, which I do think are correct, and I want to ask, you know, why do those parallels exist? Um, it does seem to me that they do exist, but why? And I answer that by saying that um, both political orders and um, theological systems are dealing with um, an unfixable problem. And the theological side, this is the problem of evil, Uh, mainly how can an all-good, all-powerful God allow evil and injustice to happen? And this is not a, a question with a final answer, as I'm sure we all know, since we all have theology degrees. Um, and on the political side, it's the question of legitimacy. Like, why should society be set up in this way and not in some other way? Why do the people in charge deserve to be in charge? And there really is no final answer to that either. And I view these two questions as kind of overlapping, as this kind of um, gap or inadequacy at the foundation of political and theological orders um, and 
both of them tend to uh, try to come up with ways to kind of patch together a solution to this unfixable problem. Um, and so with that in mind, I basically, as I say, I view political theology as a study of um, uh, systems of legitimacy and also the breakdown of those systems of legitimacy. And so um, neoliberalism seemed like um, a pretty fruitful target for that analysis in our present moment. Yeah, it totally is a fruitful target for that. I think uh, neoliberalism is one of those weird words that people have some uh, extremely strange hangups about, or maybe like willful, willful hangups about, I don't know. Um, and uh, so I follow you on Twitter and recently you tweeted uh, some pretty good stuff, some pretty good uh, comments on neoliberalism and like the weird responses you're getting from people about it. So you tweeted uh, me, neoliberalism is a thing, genius critic, no way, you can't even define it. Me, it means dot, 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 genius critic. See, it's impossible. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what's neoliberalism and why is there like a collective mental block in understanding what neoliberalism actually is? It seems like um, it is a very definable uh, concept and you do it in like the first page of your book. But like, why, uh, why do people not want it to be a thing or why uh, can't people get around this? Yeah, I think that uh, there are a lot of reasons for the hangups, but I'll start with the simple um, definition that the genius critic was interrupting me and preventing me from, from giving, uh, which is that neoliberalism is um, an agenda of public policy that aims to shape um, as many aspects of social life as possible on the uh, model of a competitive market. Um, it is um, a political and economic agenda that had its origins in uh, the writings of people like Hayek and Friedman and people like this um, around the time of the Second World War and, and following, and then uh, was implemented under Reagan and Thatcher and other kind of similar people, and has basically been the dominant um, political ideology, at least in the, the Anglophone world, um, for a generation. And I think that one reason that people don't want to regard it as a thing is that they don't see it as a particular ideology. Um, it's been so pervasive. It's been so successful, um, successful in terms of, of convincing people that it, there is no alternative. Um, it's been adopted uh, by the ostensibly left-wing parties in many of these countries, um, you know, under Clinton. Um, the Reagan revolution was kind of adopted into the Democratic Party. So to name it, to call it a specific ideology, is kind of violating their sense of reality. To them, what we would call neoliberalism is just the way things are, um, and, att and an attempt to, to name it and, and make it something specific is almost like um, you know, violating their worldview, or it just doesn't compute for them. I think that it's also problematic because um, in the wake of the uh, 2016 uh, presidential primaries where Hillary Clinton was identified correctly as a deeply neoliberal politician and Bernie Sanders was seen as, again, correctly offering an alternative to that vision, um, especially due to uh, the kind of obviously highly charged emotions surrounding the election and the unexpected and painful results and the desire to find some type of um, person to blame for this outcome. 
it was decided in some circles that neoliberalism was simply a term that was made up in order to, um, you know, harass and defame Hillary Clinton, uh, which is kind of absurd. Uh, in fact, I actually talked to a colleague once who who did the the routine where he said, "Well, what is neoliberalism? Can you even define it?" And I asked her, "Would you accept any definition that I gave you?" And she basically she was like caught off guard and said, "Well, no, I actually wouldn't." You know, like there, it was just kind of a so like it, and it's it's strange too. I think that people get this kind of enjoyment out of denying the reality of it because it becomes a way of kind of uh, castigating people as unrealistic, as like idealistic leftists who will never get anything done. Um, rejecting the idea that there is something called neoliberalism kind of designates you as somebody who's on the inside of neoliberalism. Um, so it's kind of a weird in-group formation for an in-group that won't ex admit that it exists. Yeah, that is wild to see it as this kind of weird. I mean, I guess it proves your point that uh, it's a term that allows certain kind of social formations um, in such a way that you wouldn't even recognize them as being formed or you would see them as kind of taken for granted. Um, and I, I think one really strong part about your book as well is that in addition to all the conceptual work that you do trying to explain what neoliberalism is or how we could actually talk about it, um, you also do a lot of work uh, trying to kind of articulate what it feels like to live in a neoliberal society. Um, so there's a pretty good example, I think, that I'll read really quickly where you write this. Um, so you say, we have to be in a constant state of high alert, always hustling for opportunities and connections, always planning for every contingency, including the inherently unpredictable vagaries of health and longevity. We have to fritter away our life with worry and paperwork and supplication, pitching ourselves over and over, building our personal brand, all for ever lowering wages or a smattering of piecework, which barely covers increasingly exorbitant rent, much less student loan payments. Um, I mean, I resonate really well with that paragraph uh, as a person who's in graduate school and is uh, constantly pitching myself. Um, and I guess uh, I would I would ask you to say a little bit about what is neoliberalism about, or what is neoliberal about this situation, or why would it resonate with people who live in a neoliberal situation? Um, so more than just the the sort of conceptual apparatus, like how does this sort of existential uh, scene that you paint? Um, shed some light on what neoliberalism is. I think that it shows um, how neoliberalism actually penetrates to the most like intimate um, areas of our life, even our own self-concept. Um, and this has both kind of material and ideological causes. On the, on the one hand, in the neoliberal era, there's been a real push to... Um, take away job security, take away kind of the assurances of lifetime employment that somebody might have expected in the post-war era, and basically make people kind of re-earn their jobs over and over and over again throughout their lives. Um, and I think for a young person entering the, the, the job market today, it's even worse because it seems like the quality of jobs that are available is so much lower. There's kind of a need to juggle a lot of different positions. It's hard to it's hard to break into anything that could be, um, you know, a steady, livable job. And so you kind of have to be constantly hustling. Like you've got your main job, but then you need to get the side hustle. The fact that the side hustle is a well-known term and that people talk about it as though it's normal. This is like neoliberalism in the nutshell. This is kind of the, the lifestyle that they're trying to get us to 
to think about, like always being on the lookout for another source of income, always being on the lookout for another way to kind of build your reputation or your resume. Um, this is what it means to be um, constantly like marketing yourself, um, competing against other workers, uh, trying to find an opportunity every day of your life. And um, I think as we all know, if we even if we participate that in that only a little bit, we know that it's incredibly exhausting. It's um, emotionally draining. Um, and I think that this is, in a way, the Achilles heel of the neoliberal order because um, the people who have been living with it their entire lives just kind of can't take it. Like, it's not sustainable. Um, it's causing, I think, clearly a rise in, like, mental, mental health problems like depression and anxiety, this kind of thing. Um, so... It's a perverse kind of hope that we can tell that people really can't can't do this in the long term. I think another aspect that is um, very deeply neoliberal, and I think this more ties to my own um, kind of unique perspective on neoliberalism, is that um, all of these uh, situations, all of these uh, all of these competitions and self-marketing that we're entering into, it's all pitched as though it's um, a result of our own free choices so that our fate is somehow in our hands, like we need to take control of our destiny. And, you know, like if you uh, are struggling with the student's loans, um, instead of looking at the fact that education funding has been reduced and there was a, a conscious decision to shift from government support to student loans, it's not about social issues. No, it's about you personally. You should have chosen a different major if you didn't want to um, have a poorly paid job or you should have networked with the right people. You should have, you know, there's always something that you could have done differently to position yourself better in the marketplace. And I think in addition to the exhaustion and just kind of strain, this produces a kind of enduring burden of shame because nobody is succeeding to the extent that they want to everybody feels like a failure to some extent and the, the social order is set up to make it feel like it's always our own fault and so it goes from thinking like i keep on failing i keep on losing out to i am a failure i am a loser um and again this just increases the emotional burden of of the neoliberal lifestyle yeah that individualization of like personal failures and putting the burden always on the individual t to me seems like such a religious way of thinking especially with regards to e like evangelicalism about how sin is always very personal and just about you know you and your life well um i guess maybe another question about that whole uh, bit on free will and neoliberalism um there's a great section in your book that's called how to create a demon where you talk about some of like the weird logical conclusions involved in the Christian tradition regarding demons and free will. Um, and you locate that uh, you locate those things in neoliberalism. Uh, could you summarize a little bit about uh, how you do create a demon and how neoliberalism creates demons? Yeah, I think uh, this is an argument that grows out of my previous book, uh, The Prince of This World, also available wherever um, fine books are sold. You know, I got to build my <laughs> brand, too. Uh, <laughs> But basically, um, you know, uh, the Christian tradition has always been determined that, um, that moral judgment can only occur where an act of free will um, has been involved. Um, and uh, 
the way that um, they think about these problems of free will and um, responsibility, especially with what it means to be free in a world that has an almighty God, um, it really comes to a head in the question of how could the angels have rebelled against God and become demons. Um, and what becomes the classical view in Western Christianity is like a very puzzling version of the story. Um, essentially, God creates the angels. Um, this is in the first instant of creation. Um, in the second instant of creation, he demands immediate obedience and submission from, uh, from these newly minted creatures who have no experience, literally no context, nothing to go on. Um, and a certain number of them resist in some unspecified way. And this leads God to um, cast them into eternal darkness. Um, they uh, subsequently live with like a warped will that can't do the right thing. Um, and all of this for something when they were only like one instant old. And if you read the text where these um, ideas are being put forward, it seems like um, increasingly clear that God is actually wants the demons to rebel, that he wants to be able to create some amount of evil that he can respond to and draw good out of and like kind of save people from. And, but in order to achieve that, he needs to kind of induce the demons to freely choose to rebel against him and become evil. Um, because if he creates evil directly, then this creates, first of all, the obvious problem that God is not supposed to be the cause of evil. That's like what the whole problem of evil is trying to get out of. But also, if he created them directly evil, then they wouldn't even be evil because they would just be following their nature. And so he needs to kind of morally entrap them into doing what he wants them to do. But at the same time, he's also going to punish them for what he wants them to do because they're doing it in a rebellious way. Um, and so I think that this dynamic of moral entrapment is basically how the neoliberal order gets its hooks into us. Like um, neoliberalism's demons are not like the bankers or, or something like this. They're us. Like neoliberalism demonizes us by putting us in these continual um, situations where we're trapped into making a decision that then the neoliberal order will construe as wrong and punishable. Um, and it needs us to kind of believe that we've freely chosen it, or at least it needs others to believe that we've freely chosen it um, so that it can justify kind of dishing out the punishment. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's essentially um, how I connect demonization to neoliberalism. Yeah, it's a really neat um, device that you use. I mean, it clarifies a lot of things, and it also raises interesting problems and questions in both theology and uh, sort of economic or political philosophy as well. Um, I'm really curious to hear you talk to a little bit more about how there's a place in the book where you uh, use these ideas about demons to differentiate how neoconservatives and neoliberals respond to those people who are marked as demons. Um could you say, like, do do you think that they demonize people differently, or do they um, respond to people who are demonized uh, differently, even if they're demonized in the same way? Um, and then there's also a piece of that where you talk about a, a sort of redemption narrative um, that neoliberals have um, with respect to those demons, and how does that come into play? Yeah, I think that um, 
it's important to to recognize, you know, like the demons are like demonized absolutely. Like there's no coming back from it. But something similar happens with humanity where they are kind of entrapped into this meaningless command. Uh, God presumably knows the devil is going to tempt them and allows it to happen. And um, this all sets up so that he can have his glorious plan of saving us through Jesus. And so humans are entrapped in the same way that demons are. They're kind of lured into the situation where they will freely choose the wrong thing that God wants them to choose. But they also have a chance to kind of come back to that God um, sometimes uses bad choices in order to show his mercy or something. Um, so I think that basically, to put it very crassly, neoconservatives are more apt to do the absolute demonization, to just assume that, that people are unredeemable and need to be cast out into the darkness, whereas neoliberals are more eager to think that you could somehow um, redeem those people. Um, so I think that... Um, the way they talk about fundamentally similar policies can often be a, um, a, a way to think about this difference. For instance, when Reagan was tough on crime and instituting the war on drugs, it was basically you know, to demonstrate that, um, that black people were inherently more criminal, that they are irresponsible and deserve to be kind of imprisoned or entrapped in ghettos and things like this. There was no um, pretense that there was anything but a punitive agenda here or that black people could somehow show themselves to be worthy of different treatment. But if you look at Clinton or Obama, when they get tough on crime, it's in order to kind of like enhance the dignity of black people, maybe to, um, you know, maybe enhance the safety of the good black people who are being victimized by the bad ones, but also, you know, to show that um, that we respect them in some way, that we respect that they have a free will and that they need to be held accountable for their actions just like anybody else or something like that. Um, so in, on some level, it can be a difference in rhetoric. Um, on, in other cases, it can be a real difference in, in practice. Um, for instance, on homosexuality, conservatives insist that homosexuality is a choice um, because it has to be a choice if it's going to be like morally blameworthy. But they don't seem to have any sense that um, that homosexuals could like seriously be reformed or like that or included in society in any way. Whereas um, neoliberals allow uh, homosexuals the opportunity um, to kind of join mainstream society if they do um, you know, gay marriage, if they have monogamous couples, if they kind of imitate straight couples as much as they possibly can, they kind of have this like this possibility of redemption, like they too can be normal. Um, or I think something similar too with regards to like uh, racism, like conservatives are happy for non-whites to be excluded from most like educational and economic and political opportunities. Um, Whereas liberals, neoliberals are happy to include like the best non-whites among the uh, privileged elite. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, it, it can be a cosmetic difference, although in the case of individual lives, it obviously makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, well, riffing off of those points you just made about neoliberalism kind of implementing its own logic to, um, you know, social institutions like um, 
I mean, you just said that heterosexual couples have to imitate heterosexual couples. Um, uh, I think that's a really interesting, like, I guess, thing that kind of emerges from neoliberalism because it's not just like destroying the family as like traditionalists might worry or something, um, but instead it creates like its own version of the family. And I wonder what you'd say um, about neoliberalism and religion. Like, um, do you have any thoughts about what kinds of Christianity or religious expressions neoliberalism might create? Um, that is not just like political theological mechanisms, like the ones you explore, but expressions of people's faith or worship um, or things like along those lines. Uh, yeah, I think um, it it's pretty clear to me that um, that evangelicalism, or at least white evangelicalism as we know it today, uh, is a deeply um, neoliberal uh, expression of Christianity. Um, it's very um, individualizing, as you say, um, but it's individualizing in a way that presupposes that um, that if people act freely and spontaneously, if they're responding to God in an authentic way, that they are going to look all the same. Um, and if the people do not, um, you know, kind of adhere to this, to the evangelical norm, the reason must be that they have chosen wrongly or they're letting somebody like get in the way of this choice. Um, and I think also the emphasis on, um, on kind of marketing, um, on the creation of like an imitation popular culture to kind of spread the Christian message, um, like all of this kind of thing, uh, the corporate slickness of kind of megachurch Christianity, um, all of this is like evangelicals uh, run the church like a business. And um, mostly they're not out to directly make money, obviously, uh, I would hope not, but they are often out to just like increase the number of people in the pews. Um, and they do this by, you know, obviously making it uh, accessible, meeting people where they are, um, and, um, and so I think if we think what we think of as evangelicalism, it kind of like it had its roots in like, uh, kind of hippie Christianity or like Jesus people type of stuff, as well as other movements like Pentecostalism or something, but it really only comes into its own as the, uh, social and political force that we know in like the late seventies and early eighties. Um, and you know, I just don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that evangelicalism is the version of Christianity that was kind of born in neoliberalism and thrives in neoliberalism. Yeah, that's a really amazing and troubling, very interesting thing to keep on thinking about. Um, yeah, just kind of having flashbacks to evangelical college. <laughs> but, uh, I guess kind of on that point too, we could think a little bit more about, um, how these like theological uh mechanisms that you identify do open up like weird uh symbolic um environments to kind of think through what it would mean to resist something like that not only like as a person of faith or whatever but just in general um so for example like you end your book uh with this provision saying that there aren't really any easy answers or obvious answers to building new political theological paradigms um so you say the only infallible sign i can offer is that we will know that it is a new paradigm when we find ourselves building it. Um, so, like, we think that you're right about that. Uh, but I wonder what you'd make of the kind of, like, political theological intervention 
about the devil that other kinds of uh, theorists are kind of using, you know, playing with uh, Christian symbolism. Um, so one that we just thought of was uh, Mikhail Bakunin, um, who we've talked about in the show in the past. Uh, he makes this really interesting, like, reading of uh, Genesis and God in the State, where he says, uh, the devil and in turn human beings are rebellious figures from the start, but that act of rebellion is, like, not just a process of demonization, but for him a kind of humanization as well. Um, so what do you think about, like, just embracing that demonization or playing the role of the rebel in spite of that demonization um, against something like neoliberalism, uh, whether it be in the sort of forms of Christianity that it engenders or other kinds of social institutions? Um, this is just like a really open question because we've been thinking about this text a little bit in the past. So I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that associative kind of exercise. Yeah, I think that... Um... It's a tricky question, like uh, the devil as this romantic rebel has kind of recurred throughout modernity as a, as a kind of point of reference for movements of, of revolution or rebellion. Um, and I think that kind of um, also the act of doubling down has also proven effective, um, you know, like a... I think the the LGBT movement is a great example of this. Like um, those identities of like homosexual or bisexual, trans, etc., were initially kind of imposed on people through psychiatric and medical discourse, and um, as a way of like controlling and oppressing them. But they took that identity and kind of turned it around um, to become a rallying point for. Um, for demanding, you know, equal treatment and kind of forming community. So you could ask, okay, if we're all being demonized by the order, why not just like, okay, I am a demon then, like let, you know, you know, bring it or something like this. Um, I think what's difficult though, is that the neoliberal order has done such a great job of kind of incorporating or anticipating transgression as the way that, um, as a, as a way of legitimating itself. Like, um, I think about, for instance, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, uh, AOC, who I think is, you know, a wonderful breath of fresh air. I kind of can't believe that she really exists. You know, this um, dynamic and amazing, like very principled left-wing politician. But it seems as though, like, uh, she can't help but also become this kind of social media brand and that like a lot of pu like publications are basically kind of making their living now on like following her around and shitting up controversy around her and stuff like that. Um, and she does like pose a legitimate like threat to the system, but even that very threat can become like fodder for the, for the content mill or something like that. Um, and and it's very difficult to avoid that. I, and I just hope it's clear I don't blame her for the fact that this is happening or whatever. But um, I also think that um, I, I'm reading a lot of uh, Giorgio Agamben. I have been for like a really long time, but now I'm reading like way, way more, like much more rapidly. And he thinks a lot more in terms of strategies of withdrawal rather than... Um, that kind of combat, like of letting something kind of collapse under its own weight rather than trying to like um, break it or take it over. And one thing that I think about a lot is that 
it's not that we're just victims of this dynamic of demonization. Uh, we kind of all participate in it as well. Uh, we are always kind of passing judgment on each other. We're always kind of um, demonizing each other or assessing each other or finding each other wanting. And in fact, like large sections of the economy now basically run on judgment. What are we doing when we like or retweet or whatever on social media other than like passing an approving judgment? Or maybe we're like passive aggressively doing it and passing a negative judgment or something like this. Like, um, so I wonder if we could just go on strike from demonizing people, if we could go on strike from passing these judgments, not to say that we should all be like wishy-washy centrists or something, or that we should all get along, but I mean the specific forms by which people are like, by which people's measurable kind of social media cultural capital is produced. Um, like if we could find some way to to uh, kind of withdraw from those types of practices, which of course I'm very far from doing. I wonder if that might actually be more disruptive than um, what would be more recognizable as an act of rebellion. But I'm no expert on what should be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, neither are we, but that is, uh, I think, a pretty interesting perspective. Um, well, departing from like the romantic, uh, rebellious type of demons for a second and talking about the actual terrible ones, uh, <laughs> recently you wrote this article for Slate about Tucker Carlson <laughs> and a bunch of other right-wing pundits. Um, who have this like weird um, seeming support for some you know like progressive political efforts? Um, in the article, you conclude uh, you conclude the article explaining that like this newfound left streak in some of these like right wing pundits isn't because of like their new adherence to you know the immortal science of Marxism Leninism or just progressive politics in general, but it's instead because they're interested in cons uh, conserving like the racial hierarchy by keeping white people economically advantaged. Um, I think that's a pretty interesting take and it definitely helps us make sense of like what in the heck is going on. But uh, could you maybe talk for a second about like how white supremacy is tied up in demonization and neoliberalism? Yeah, I think that um, to understand what's going on now with people like Tucker Carlson, we kind of need to go back to the origins of, of neoliberalism under Reagan. And um, the fact like, the cultural issue of kind of like uh, demonizing and scapegoating blacks was not some separate thing from the economic policy. Like it was all part of an overarching um, plan, which was um, the idea that uh, that the market would be more likely to reinforce traditional hierarchies um, versus um, you know welfare state policies, which were likely to break them down. Um, in particular, um, the welfare state became a point of controversy in the U.S. when it started to be um, extended more to blacks. I mean, if you, in the cultural common sense of most Americans, um, welfare is primarily for black people, which remains untrue, but was never the case. In fact, most of the time, blacks were actually excluded from welfare systems. Um, they were even excluded from Social Security when it was initially created. Um, so the the black population has kind of always been subject to market discipline, which had always kind of kept them in a subservient uh, position within the economy. And so um, by cutting that type of support, uh, Reagan 
um, expected to kind of reinforce the racial hierarchy um, to um, they hope to strengthen white families by increasing their bonds of dependence um, within the family, uh, because in the absence of a public safety net, you need to rely on your family safety net. Um, and they were well aware that the kind of um, economic disruption that they were visiting on black communities would uh, lead to their families being um, less stable, which would then open up the door for them to say, as they always do, that the uh, problems of the black community are their own fault because they should just kind of, um, you know, wise up and and start being uh, start being reliable family men or whatever. Um, so, basically, entrapping um, black families into a dynamic where um, a stable father figure is not available, where um, you know, in some cases, stable living conditions are not available, um, but then still. Um, acting as though it's a matter of their own like moral caliber that they failed to be a good family by the standards of uh, of the traditional white patriarchal family. Um, so what's happened in the last 40 years is that um, the market forces that initially kind of reinforced um, the the um, dominance of of white middle class families have started to kind of um, erode the structures of support for those families as well. Um, as Tucker Carlson says, a lot of the pathologies that we used to see in Detroit are now in you know, some Rust Belt um, post-industrial region um, where the population is majority white. And so um, he basically wants to uh, kind of bring about like uh, socialist measures that will help to kind of shore up the poorer white families that are collapsing under economic pressure. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that he does not actually care about anything that's happening in the black community or envision any of the stuff to be benefiting them. Um, so it's just a matter of, it's similar goals, but new tools um, that um, the market has um, kind of succeeded in making the family model something that's like a mark of privilege that would only be kind of attainable by whites for the most part, but over the years that um, privilege has become like more and more difficult to attain. So now whites are being left out. So now we need to kind of backtrack a little in his mind. So it's like just enough socialism to kind of get back to the hierarchy that he wants. No further. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's helpful too, because there, it's like, okay, it's something that Tucker Carlson talks about. Uh, but it's also a major blind spot of like, even some kind of Bernie Sanders folks or like, uh, I don't know, people who sort of pine for the days of like Fordist uh, economies or, you know, New Deal policies who, who tend to, I think, um, lose that like race angle a little too quickly. Um, yeah. So you point to like a sort of ethnically homogenous state in Scandinavia or something and kind of ignore the antagonisms that are present in a place like the U.S. Um I don't know. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that? I'm kind of putting you on the spot here a little bit, but I guess uh, I'm interested to hear what you might say about how the same dynamic uh, might be present in some segments of like uh, the left broadly construed. Yeah, I think that there's a tendency, um, especially in online debate, um, for there to be this idea of like a class first and class only um, version of Marxism. And this appeals to, especially to, to white men who kind of want to cut through 
the identity politics that like make them feel uncomfortable or excluded or judged or something like this. Um, and, but I think that in, on, in a more sophisticated level, there is this kind of division between like economic and cultural issues that is kind of, um, long been a part of Marxism, like the idea of the base versus the superstructure and kind of, if we can change the base, then the superstructure will kind of automatically get fixed by itself or something like this. Um, again, this is not the most sophisticated version of Marxism or the only version of Marxism, but it's one that you know, gets trotted out a lot. And I think that um, kind of as I've, as I've been thinking more deeply um, on the topics of the book, kind of like since its publication and uh, thinking about like future possible research projects, like there has never been a non-racist and non-colonialist version of capitalism. Capitalism arose with colonialism. It used the wealth of colonialism and um, especially the wealth kind of produced through chattel slavery um, in, you know, to kind of like build up the stores of capital that were necessary to get the whole thing going. Um, and I just think that it's naive to think that racism is somehow just this like dispensable overlay or that it's just a distraction or something like that. And I, it, while I haven't fully, um, you know, completed this this line of research or fully justified this claim, my intuition is that actually race um, is the principle of legitimacy of capitalism. That race sorts people into different categories of of different categories of moral concern, and um, you can tell that capitalism is a just order because it sorts its rewards according to these racial categories, which somehow correspond to nature. Um, and this would mean that 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 thinking that you can somehow like tweak the capitalist system to get rid of racism um, is really naive. That like both of them have to have to be tackled together because both were born together and both have always been together. Um, this makes it like a lot more difficult and intimidating, um, but you know, things that are worth doing are often difficult and intimidating. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, maybe to round out this conversation, um, this is a podcast, um, about Christianity and leftist politics. And like, that's kind of like what we talk about, I think most of the time. Um, but you've given a lot of cool talks to leftist audiences in particular, but I wonder like what you might hope that Christians on the left would take away from your book. Yeah, I think that, um, I hope that they would come away from my book and be less likely to advance strategies like, um, you know, what we need to do is a return to Christianity or like this kind of uh, view, like Christianity has never been tried or, or this, that in a way, like a big problem in our world is not that we've like departed from Christianity, but that it's all too Christian, that it, that all of this stuff is kind of a Christian legacy. And that's the reason that so many Christians feel comfortable kind of um, going along with it and encouraging it and enforcing it. Um, like to think that uh, that if we just inject some Christianity into the, the formula that, that things will get better, I think that that, that is kind of naive. Also to think that, you know, Christianity has an inherently anti-capitalist, um, you know, economic ethic that's just like ready to go or something like that. I just find that to be kind of naive as well, because capitalism did grow out of Christian culture. Um, and 
you know, there there were like brave protesters and and brave uh, like um, resistors, but they were a minority. Um, you know, if if capitalism is incompatible with Christianity, then why did European Christian culture develop and promote it and spread it all around the world? Um, so basically, I would just say um, that this kind of genealogical work. I hope will keep Christian theologians honest about what the real legacy of Christianity has been. And I hope that they do not respond to my work by doing kind of the no true Scotsman um, fallacy and saying, oh no, that wasn't real Christianity or that was a distortion of Christianity. Um, but I think that I would hope that accepting this as a real version of Christianity that people found plausible um, in good faith um, would help them to kind of look at the blind spots in their own theology um, and and hopefully come up with a more radically critical version of Christianity that could hopefully combat some of this. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good note to end on, I think. Um, well, the book is uh, Neoliberalism's Demons, and Adam also has a number of other books, Prince of This World, um, and plenty of other, some like more theoretical books, but also some really good books on popular culture. Uh, we'll list a bunch of them in our show notes. Um, any other things that you feel you should you should plug for your brand there, Adam, in this neoliberal <laughs> world? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you should follow me on Twitter, at Adam Kotzko. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'll let my brand fend for itself. <laughs> uh, the true bravery. Um all right, great. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the show and for the work that you're doing. It's really important, and uh, we appreciate all your time. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, then you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is just twitter.com slash The Magnificast. Um, uh, also, we're coming up on our 100th episode very soon, which is uh, extremely exciting, I think. It's something. It's definitely <laughs> it, it something. It is an achievement. We get a letter from the president, I think. <laughs> yeah, he's going to send us a very fancy pen that he used to sign a bill into a law, is what I've heard. Um, <laughs> that's what you get for 100 podcasts. Uh, and then uh, that's it. And then you're done with podcasts. Um, yeah, so on our 100th episode, we're going to um, take some theology questions from you, our wonderful listeners. So if you guys want to ask us any theology questions uh, and have us uh, dumb idiots who don't know anything about theology answer them with our own sort of uh, skewed uh, humor, this is your chance. Send them in to us. We've already got a few, and listen, they're going to be absolutely very uh, strange. Probably weird jokes, mostly. Um I think I remember one time on here we talked we made some kind of weird joke about like the Trinity and um, Jonathan Merton was like very <laughs> very like disappointed at us on Twitter. Yeah, I'm sure he hasn't listened since. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thanks uh, to Amari Armstrong for our cool intro music, and thank you to Theological Spoon for our great outro music. See you next time. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord